What's up, everybody? It is episode 24 of RJ Bell's Dream Preview, the NBA edition, with myself, Joe Serralo, and my man, as always, Mackenzie Rivers. Mackenzie, we opened up last episode talking about LeBron. I think we're going to do the same this episode. How you doing, my man? I'm doing excellent. What a perfect microcosm of the Lakers season. Friday, LeBron goes for 50-plus in a win. Sunday, the game's over in the first quarter. (laughs) That's how things have been going down there in SoCal lately. But let's talk about that win, and let's talk about the Lakers' past two home games. LeBron, for the first time in his career, back-to-back 50-point home games. And when you look at his performance in those, it's not like he was just scoring, and that's all he did. Did it all, rebounding, getting teammates involved even, even though he's really the only source of offense that they have. I feel like even you have to be impressed with how he performed in those two games. I'm very impressed. One of the great basketball players ever continues to do it. My contention with LeBron James is that this is what he does. Have spectacular statistical performances that you couldn't believe, you couldn't write down on a piece of paper with a straight face at 37 years old. This is what he does. He's, like you said, averaging the last three games, eight assists per game. That's way over his... His season, his season averages. So even as he's scoring more, he's assisting more. My contention continues to be, if you're playing the right kind of basketball, if you're heeding the kind of fundamentals, I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, post game or layup or using your left hand when you, with your right shoulder defending you. I mean, not taking 37-footer fadeaways with 20 seconds to go in the shot clock. Those kind of things... Yes, you can hit them every now and then. Yes, you're going to get hot and go 18 for 25 and be the oldest player with 50 in back-to-back games. But at the end of the day, your team is not building anything. And that's my problem. As great as he is, he keeps doing this. I mean, six assists, seven rebounds, back-to-back games, averaging 40 points in those games. I think he's doing it at the expense of his team. I think he's doing it... I think he purposely decided when he when he talked about how he could never be the Lakers this year couldn't be as good as the Bucks. I think he took that moment to say, "Hey, I'm this close to passing Kareem. That's what I'm going to focus on." And I think throughout his career, whether he needed 13 rebounds here or uh, one game he'd go nine for ten, and it's like, why didn't he shoot more? Because he's perfectly calculating the greatest statistical resume anyone's ever put together. And by the way, not easy to do. Not easy to do. You have to be a phenomenal athlete, someone that can be as durable as he is for as long as he is, and you have to be as good at basketball as he is to do it. I just don't think it makes you the best. And you know, it's interesting. I will say, I think tonight, I understand where you're coming from. I understand your argument more than any other show that we've ever discussed this. I'm glad. But I still struggle to look at 35 points, 10 boards, 6 assists per game. Those are his per game averages in the month of March and say that the Lakers are worse off because of it. I really just think that it speaks to to truly how bad the team around him is, especially when Anthony Davis is not on the court. Uh, I can't say that a guy going out there putting those numbers up. I mean, look, if he was just shooting, you know, if he was averaging 35 points per game, but shooting 40% from the floor, not playing defense, not rebounding, not getting teammates involved, then yes, keep your points per game total. But he's doing it all. He's playing on both sides of the of, of the ball of the floor. I can't say his team is worse off because of it. He's also playing efficient basketball. This is not a guy who's going out there chucking up shots like Russ Westbrook and going, you know, 12 of 30, right? This is a guy who's 
in those two home games when he put up 50 pieces, shot 66% from the floor, 60% from beyond the arc. And how about this for LeBron? This is his weakness. He was 95% from the charity stripe in those two games. I mean, efficiency in every aspect of the game. Yes. Statistical efficiency is LeBron James' calling card. Uh, In 2013, he had like 60% from the field. And I'm like, how come late in the game he's not shooting more if he's hitting 60% from the field? This year, just a couple days ago, we talked about it on this podcast. You're... You have a guy in the air, you're driving past him, you're against the worst defense in the league, the Houston Rockets, and you're passing so that Carmelo can get a double-clutch fadeaway shot at the buzzer. People say, that, oh, that's his weakness at the end of games, he doesn't take the shot. I'm saying that happens in the first quarter, when he doesn't have a dunk, when it's not as easy as it could be, he will often, for statistical prowess, pass it off to a teammate. You talk about Russell Westbrook and how inefficient he is. Last year when he was on the Wizards, they would had a 2% chance to make the playoffs late in the spring, and he put up triple doubles after triple doubles, sometimes inefficiently, sometimes not, but he put himself out there and they made the playoffs, the Washington Wizards. LeBron James picks out Russell Westbrook and says, hey, join my team. I need that kind of energy. I need that kind of spirit to get, get through the, the doldrums of a season. Well, the Wizards right now, without Westbrook and without Beal, are 29-37. and 37. The Los Angeles Lakers, with a lot better help than Westbrook had last year, are 29-38. and 38. You were talking about, when we were talking about Jordan and uh, how he never, he, his statistical resume when facing elimination can't compare to LeBron James. Jordan doesn't go 29-38 and 38 and, and have a play-in tournament. I mean, he probably doesn't play till 37, so it's, it's another, it's another wrinkle, but he doesn't face elimination, Michael Jordan, because if it's a bad team, he beats them. I don't care if he scores 25, 35, or 45. The, the statistics are out the window. B.J. Armstrong has talked about this. He's, it's like he was playing a different game beyond the game, dictating where and when he was going to in, insert his influence. I just think it's a tier above. And I think, here's my last point on it. LeBron James putting up, what, 29 eight and seven, or no, 29, eight and six, pretty close to his 27, seven and seven historical resume that everyone said for year after year, put him on any team and they'll be, they'll win 50 games because he's putting up 27, seven and seven. Well, four years out West, same statistical resume, Lakers are going to miss the playoffs most likely two out of four years, maybe 27 and seven, 27-7-7 isn't the golden, oh, you got to win 50 games because this guy is putting up these stats. Maybe they're empty. Maybe you put up 27-7, you have great talent, you're a 60-win team. You put up 27-7, you have average talent, you're an average team. It completely doesn't change the trajectory of your team. It's just stats. Well, let's look at some other guys putting up 27-7-7 because LeBron's not the only one. And if you look at the other guys doing that right now in the league, their teams are all in pretty damn good shape. John Morant, 27, 6, and 7. Giannis, 29.7. Same total as LeBron, uh, 11 and 6. The Joker, 26, 14, and 8. Of course, the Joker and Joel Embiid just squared off in a battle of MVP favorites. So I probably just mentioned the four guys, Embiid, Morant, Giannis, and Jokic, who are probably the four front runners for the MVP. Of course, Jokic and Embiid a little above the other two. My man, do you think the winner of that game? 
is the front runner? Is the Joker right now the MVP front runner, or is it Embiid or someone else in your eyes? This is actually where we should have started the show if I didn't have this one percentile opinion that I feel like I have to defend all the time. <laughs> it's funny because watching the game, and I watched most of it, all of the second half, you could see the MVP race turn mid-broadcast. I mean, in the first half, the Sixers were up 15. Nick Wright was saying, going to be really exciting to see who tries to say with a straight face that Jokic is the MVP. All right, 15 minutes later, at Dr. Guru, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar. He's got like 100,000 Twitter followers. He's uh, Everybody wants to just be that guy that has basketball opinions and people care. He somehow fashioned himself on Twitter, Dr. Guru, as that role. He put up almost the exact opposite tweet minutes later. He says, hmm, I wonder who the MVP is with a graphic of Jokic leading in every statistical category, 17 points, eight rebounds, six assists, two steals. We're Embiid leading in points, but he has a whole lot of help on the other side. What's interesting about this game is I actually thought Embiid played much better. I don't think Jokic had a particularly great game. And he was on the bench in the fourth quarter when Cousins hit a couple threes and they had a great run. But maybe that's the overarching point, that if you are Embiid and and you're going to say, I'm the best defender, I'm the best one-on-one scorer, then when the game's tight at the end and you're not coming through, that's on you. And if you're a team guy, if you're Nikola Jokic that passes as much as anybody in the league, as much as any big man ever, and your teammates come through with you when it matters most and your teammates are, are rise to your rise to the occasion for you, I think that speaks that's, I think that's a testament to you. I said before the game that Nikola Jokic was the value at three to one last week and now even at plus 150, I think he's played just as good. and I think the Sixers story this season isn't about Embiid. I think it's about Harden coming in and what that's going to be. I think Jokic has been better. His team won. I think he's the MVP favorite. We'll see what the odds say tomorrow. I tend to agree with you on this. I mean, let's face it. Joel Embiid was having a great year, but before James Harden got to Philadelphia, that team was not really a threat atop the East. I mean, they were a team that could have made it to the second round, maybe even the conference finals. They were not going to outlast Milwaukee in a seven-game series. Just Joel Embiid by himself without James Harden. Wasn't going to happen. So you look at him. And the 76ers and all of the success that they've had post-Harden deal. I know they've dropped a couple. The embarrassing loss to Brooklyn. And now tonight, the tight one to Denver. But you look at Jokic. And, you know, we've talked about this all season. And he has done the most with the least. You know, I I love John Rothstein. I'm also a huge college hoops fan in addition to the NBA. And Rothstein has really taken pride in my alma mater, the St. Bonaventure Bonnies. Loves to, after every win, tweet out Mark Schmidt. More with less. Talking about less resources, less recruiting help, uh, less funding, all that. Nikola Jokic, more with less. I I mean, I can't think of a supporting cast, you know, of any team in contention as bad as the Nuggets. I I mean, he might have a worse supporting cast than John Morant does in Memphis. And that's been my argument for John Morant all season, getting more buzz in the MVP race, is look at what he's doing. Where would the Grizzlies be without him? Well, where would the Nuggets be without Jokic? And so you look at him and his case, and you compare it to Embiid. I thought tonight's game was very representative of the season as a whole. Joel Embiid, 34 points, has the most 30-point games in the NBA this season. I believe that was his 31st 30-point game. Did the scoring, but Jokic did the dirty work. Only had 22, not a sexy number in the box score, but he had 13 rebounds. He averages 14. He had eight assists. That's his average. He got his teammates involved. He wasn't selfish. Sometimes Joel Embiid can be selfish. Maybe he needed to get James Harden involved a little more. 
I mean, maybe Tyrese Maxey needs to play a bigger role on Philadelphia. Not bashing Joel Embiid, but I certainly don't think that it's really much of a competition between him and Jokic for the MVP award. Uh, I think it's it's Jokic's award, and I think, honestly, the guy who should be giving him the fiercest competition right now is Giannis over Embiid. I don't think Embiid's a top two MVP candidate at the moment. I tend to agree with you. The odds do not, and I, I don't really understand it. I mean, the imputed odds are that Embiid's about 55% to win it. Jokic is about another 40%, and then distant would be Giannis and then Ja Morant. Look at the standings. I mean, not the East-West standings for a minute. Just look at the actual records of the teams. The Nuggets, after tonight's, tonight's win, 41-28. and 28. You mentioned they don't have Murray. They haven't had Porter since November. They don't have a playoff team outside of this guy where the Sixers do. The Sixers have a max guy in Harris that we forget about for months at a time because he's just another guy on the Sixers. The Sixers had Curry, and they replaced him with a much better guard in Harden. They had Danny Green. They had DeAndre Drummond, who's been probably the best backup big this year for a long time, before they upgraded. So the Sixers have had plenty of talent, and they're 41 and 26. Just one game back, you know, two losses, one full game, back from the in front of the Nuggets with that much talent and talent superiority. I don't really get it. I feel like especially if you look at the amount of games that Jokic has missed in his career, very little, versus the amount of games that Embiid missed his career. It's an interesting nugget. Jokic and Embiid had not played prior to tonight for 825 games. 825 games. More than two years. Almost, yeah, two years and 100 days they hadn't played together. Why? Because Embiid misses a lot of games. He missed November. He missed in November when they played the Nuggets. Availability should factor in down the stretch. I feel like Embiid might miss a few more. Jokic likely won't. Again, value on Jokic at plus 150. I feel like by this time tomorrow after this win, it's going to be pick them. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. You know, you talk about games played, and and that's another note that I had made. This was Jokic's 62nd game of the season. It was just Embiid's 55th. Now, I mean, you could say it's impressive as hell that Embiid has more 30-point games than anyone, considering he's only played 55 games. But at the same time, availability is key. If Jokic plays 55 games this year, the Denver Nuggets are in that 7 to 10, to 10 seed range. They're not a 6 seed with, uh, with Jokic missing 7 games, missing as many games as, Embi- as uh, Embiid has this season. That takes him out of the top 6. There's no doubt about that in my mind that Minnesota passes them if that was the case. So yeah, I think Jokic, you know, look at where the team would be without him. I think he's your MVP. But I- I'm still on the John Morant train too. I think John Morant... Uh, truthfully, Embiid out of the four guys that we mentioned, he's fourth in in my opinion, because you mentioned looking at the NBA standings as a whole, East, West, no difference. The Memphis Grizzlies have the second best record in basketball. Do you think anyone would have predicted coming into the season that right now Memphis would have the second best record in basketball? No, I don't think anyone predicted, would have predicted that John Morant would be top five in scoring. So yeah, I mean, as far as and that's where the Embiid case falls apart for me. It's like when you closed your eyes, and especially if you would have been told that Harden comes in midway through, what record do you imagine them having much worse than 41 and 26? Like this is beginning of the season. They're a top three favorite in the East, and now they're a top three seed in the East. I don't see the narrative. I don't see the narrative for Embiid. Uh, but, I mean, the odds, the odds disagree. I'll, I'll just say this. The minus 140 right now at DraftKings on Embiid is, is the worst bet in the whole sports book. 
Yeah. Just just don't make just don't make that bet. No, absolutely. I mean, look, the Philadelphia 76ers should be the one seed right now. Anything shy of the one seed is is underperforming. You know, I mean, Milwaukee is probably, I believe at least, going to overtake Miami and finish with the one seed. Philly might be the two seed, but anything shy of the one seed is underperforming. And I don't believe you can give the most valuable player award to a player on an underperforming team. I mean, this isn't baseball where Mike Trout's winning MVPs. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, baseball is my favorite sport. I love Mike Trout, no disrespect, but it's just how can you be the most valuable player if your team, when it's all said and done, has underperformed? And at least to date, that's what Philadelphia has done. The Nuggets and the Grizzlies on the flip side have overperformed. And that's why I think Jokic and Morant should really be the two favorites. You know, I'll bring up John Morant any chance I get. So while we're talking about him, Let's get to some games. We got three games on the slate, starting with some Tuesday night action. Grizzlies at Pacers. Memphis opening up at minus seven, minus seven and a half, depending on the book. Always look for the value. Mackenzie, where do you lean in this one? Well, the numbers come out pretty close to my number. I have the Grizzlies on the road as about seven point favorites, uh, all things considered. Right now, seven and a half. So that's right there. What I lean is the over because the Pacers... And I've been talking about this on different pods for all season. Under Rick Carlisle have a very clear directive to change the way that they're playing. And they've done it. Since the Sabonis trade, Pacers games have gone over on average by 10 points per game. The market has not even come close to catching up. 10 overs, only 4 unders. But here's a topper that I really think is relevant. If you look at bottom 10 offensive teams, and you just isolate those games for the Pacers, because I'm thinking the Pacers aren't a great team. They really, the, the, they, the pace and the ability for the other team to score has much more to do with are you a decent offense because the Pacers are going to be a bad defense every single night. So if you look at them just versus bad offenses, bottom 10 offenses, since the Sabonis trade, three overs, four unders. If you look at them versus everybody else, so if you don't have a bad a top 10 offense and the Grizzlies are number four right now in points per game and number four right now in pace, Pacers games versus non Bottom 10 offenses since the Sabonis trade are 7-0 to the over, 17 points higher than expectation on average. So that's a bet there for me. Close to being my best bet. I like my best bet even more this episode, but that's a bet for me. I like this over. Not exactly sure where this number is going to come out. It's not out yet, but I'm projecting it's going to be around 235, and I don't think they're going to be able to put a number high enough over the 235. Wow, that, that's a big number. And I was going to say, with, with all the conviction and all the backup that you had for that, I mean, you had me sold. That, that sounded like best bet material, my man. Uh, yeah, you're looking at two top seven teams in, in terms of, you know, over percentage. Indiana, 56.5% of their games go over. And you mentioned since the Sabonis trade, that number's way higher. And Memphis on the season, 54.5% of their games go over. You know, I gave out that bonus, I believe, a week ago, two episodes ago, the Memphis Pelicans game. And that obliterated the over, uh, which was, I believe, over under 230. And they went for like almost 250. So, yeah, I I mean, no complaints there. Lately, Indiana has been an over team and Memphis just all season has been really consistent there. Uh, I do lean towards a side in this one, though. I like the Grizzlies minus seven uh, was almost my best bet, just like that was for you. But I'll leave it as as a bonus bet. You look at Memphis and, you know, ironically, They hadn't failed to cover in a win since December 29th up until their last two games. Two straight wins that they haven't covered him. But, you know, I mentioned it last show. I mention it almost every show. If you look across the board, 
cover percentage overall, after a win, on the road, as a favorite, as an away favorite, all of them. It's all between 62 and 66%. I mean, Memphis is just a cover machine, the best team in the NBA across every category against the spread in terms of covering. And, you know, if you bet on Memphis every game, you're going to hit two out of three. Now, Indiana, since February 1st, has been awful. 4-13 and 13 straight up, 6-11 and 11 against the spread. And they're about 48% across the board in almost every category, except one. And, and this is the only thing that made me think twice about this. For some reason, against non-conference opponents, the Pacers are the best against the spread team in basketball. 16-9 and nine against the number versus non-conference opponents. That's almost a 70% clip. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me, especially when year after year, the Western Conference seems so superior to the East. Maybe they're just 15-point dogs in all those games and they're losing by 12. But nonetheless, best team in the NBA against non-conference opponents against the spread. Still, just looking at the rest of their cover numbers versus the rest of the Grizzlies, it's not enough. I'm going to go with Memphis here, minus 7 as my bonus bet. Don't disagree with you. I feel like road favorites often have value when they're bad versus bad teams where their home crowds aren't really going to show up. So is this is this Grizzlies on the road in a in the Kinsenko Fieldhouse or whatever, or is this Grizzlies in a, in a neutral? One theory I'll just throw out there, and I'm not saying this is confirmed or I've done enough studying, but Rick Carlisle was a Western Conference coach for, I don't know, 20 years, 15 years with the Mavericks at least. Maybe the teams, or maybe he has a few tricks up his sleeve, a few little nuggets that the teams, or at least the bookmakers, aren't accounting for. Or it's just, you know, a half a season of data and these things happen. Yeah, that, that's true. Both of those points could be valid. I mean, Carlisle has definitely seen John Morant just as much as any other coach in basketball through the guy's first couple of seasons. So maybe he's got a trick up his sleeve in this one. But I really think that right now Morant is, you know, almost a guarantee to score 30. Uh, this is another game, by the way. I, I like the over on his points total. Finally got up over 30. I took him. My best bet was over 29 and a half. Thank you against the Knicks, and it closed at over 30 and a half, still went over. Cash. Uh, he's on a torrid stretch right now. He's just, you know, one of, if not the hottest players in the NBA. So still going with Morant. You know, I still like over on the points in this one. I still like Grizzlies minus seven. It's just, they've been the most sure thing in the NBA from start to finish this season. I, we did mention Rick Carlisle, though. We did mention the Mavericks. I've got two Wednesday night games to get to, and we are starting with the Dallas Mavericks, at the Brooklyn Nets, of course, as we're recording this Monday night, there's no official line yet, and the Nets have a game tomorrow night, or if you're listening to this now tonight, versus the Magic. So McKenzie, with the Nets on the second leg of a back-to-back, and the Mavericks coming to town, what do you project this line to open at? I projected to open Mavericks favored, Mavericks by three, uh, three and a half, giving the two-point disadvantage for Brooklyn being on the second point of, night of a back-to-back. But if you're looking at the stats over the last month, you would you would make the Mavericks monster favorites. They've been red hot where the Nets have not. Then again, we might want to throw out all of the Nets stats until Kevin Durant came back the last few games, or at least still got his legs underneath them because they've looked like a different team recently. Yeah, they're, they're a completely different team. Kevin Durant means everything to this team, means so much more than Kyrie ever could or ever will, so much more than James Harden ever did. The Nets go through Kevin Durant, right? I mean, this guy can take over a game, and he's really not, I mean, the best two-way player. I think you might be a little more in love with his defense than I am personally, but to me, it's just that much more impressive 
that he can take over a game like none other. Well, in my opinion, mainly contributing on just one side of the floor. That just shows how dominant he is on offense. Not going to ever argue that he is a better offensive player than LeBron James. Overall, I think we'll disagree, but Kevin Durant, I mean, he just may be the best pure scorer of all time. Yeah, just real quickly, we were talking about how Embiid kind of fell short tonight in his MVP matchup versus Jokic, and you're saying, well, maybe he needed to get his teammates more involved, and, and maybe that's true. I've always come down like this. If you want to be Kobe, if you want to be Michael Jordan, then at the end of the game, if you're shooting 30 times, you got to make enough of them to get them over the hump. And it, you got to put it all on your shoulders. So Embiid tonight, did he shoot enough? Did he not shoot enough? Did he, he didn't close. He didn't finish. It was everything was on the line, game tied with a minute to go. And he didn't make the play. Kevin Durant, sometimes he he takes a shot that seems ill-advised or he takes, uh, they were talking about this on the ringer. If you look at the top 50 most frequently shooting players, he has the worst shot quality of anybody or I think it was second worst out of 51. Out of anybody in the league, only DeRozan had a worse shot quality than Durant because he puts it on his back. It's not; It doesn't always look pretty, but I'm telling you, the way he's reading the game, it's like, well, we can get a 31% shot if I pass, or we can get a 33% shot if I shoot with this clock going down. And I think he makes the unselfish play, even when it looks like he's jacking up shots like he did against the Knicks where he shot you know 50 times to get 53 points. Sometimes that's just the best way to help your team win. Yeah, geez, l- l- let me uh, let me think about this one really quick. Do I want Kevin Durant fiftieth most efficient out of fifty? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take the damn guy. I'll take the damn guy every time, ten times out of ten. I, I mean, yeah, sometimes look, stats are great. They give us more information here in the year twenty twenty two than we've ever had at our disposal, and uh, and especially in gambling, that definitely helps. Every now and then, we leave the stats at the door and just go with the basketball instinct. I think you and I can agree on this one. We take Kevin Durant on our team 10 times out of 10. Am I right? Oh, I mean, he's the best player in the world (laughs) in my book. So, yeah, I think he helps. In this matchup, I'm not sure. I mean, I think, again, I lean towards the over. I feel like the Mavericks have been an under team, but there's not really much you can do against the the Nets if they want to push the pace on you. And I feel like it's going to be the Luka show. It's going to be the Luka versus KD show. I tend to think that the team that needs it more is the Nets. So I would lean to that side, especially if they're getting points like they expect them to. How about you? How do you come down on this particular game? <sighs> I mean, the over might be might be a decent play. You look at Dallas's last few games, 95 in a win, 113 in a win, but 113 really not, not a great total against a, a terrible defensive squad that is the Houston Rockets. Uh, 77 against the Knicks. Dallas has not been scoring a ton lately, so there may be value here at taking the over. Um, I like a couple player props in this one. I want to look at, obviously they're not out yet, but I want to look at, you know, Luca and Durant, both points plus rebounds. I think the over could have value on each, you know, no Kyrie. This is going to be like a one-on-one. It's going to be Luca versus KD. And I think that they could both have a ton of value in the prop market, but looking at, you know, the, the, the Mavs minus two and a half in this one. Oh, wait, hold up. You mentioned no Kyrie. That's because I thought, I didn't mention no Kyrie because in my notes, the Nets were on the road. Mia culpa. I did have it right that they were on a back-to-back this time. I can tell you that with complete certainty. <laughs> the Nets will be on a back-to-back, but they're on the road in Orlando. That's why I got confused, the blue and the white, and they're at home versus the Dallas Mavericks. So without Kyrie, make the adjustment. It's funny because they kind of balance each other out, but in this case, I think the Nets will be short favorites. Wait, so you have the Nets favored? 
without Kyrie Irving? You think that, wait, you had them as underdogs with Kyrie and you have them Be- favored without him? I had them as underdogs without or with Kyrie in Dallas. Now you make the adjustment. They're at home without Kyrie. So it's, you know, a five point swing for the home court advantage, but minus maybe three points for Kyrie. And that ends up being uh, about a pick them. Yeah, but Nets, I, I'd say Nets are going to be one point favorites in this game will be my guess. But yeah. Okay. My- All right. Interesting. So Nets minus one changes things a bit, but look at Dallas recently, right? They've won seven of eight. They've covered six of eight. Third best covering team on the road in the NBA, 63.5%. As, well, I mean, either way you slice it, they're amazing on the road. 10 and 5 as an away favorite, uh, 11 and 7 as an away dog. I mean, the Nets at home, they're, they're a joke. They're the only team in the NBA to cover less than 40% of the time overall, home away every game. Their cover percentage under 40%, only team. Only team in the NBA to cover. Less than 30% of the time after a win. Of course, they just won. Uh, Now, assuming they're going to beat the Orlando Magic. And they are also the only team in the NBA to cover less than 20% of the time. Less than 20 at home. They're home against the spread record. 6, 25, and 1. The next worst team covers, I think it's the uh, Orlando Magic. 37.5% of the time at home. That's the next worst team. The Nets are under 20%. And as a home favorite, they're even worse. They're 16.7%. They're 420 and one against the spread as a home favorite. Uh, At some point, I know Durant's back. I I know that how the team performed over the course of, you know, the time that he was out isn't indicative of where they're at now. But at some point when the numbers say you're successful 80 to 85% of the time betting against the team, you just bet against the team and... I think the Mavericks, they're hot as hell. I think the Mavericks are going to win this game. So if the Nets are minus one, I go Dallas. Even if the Nets are plus two and a half like the original, which I know we're squashing, I- I'm still going Dallas. I'm going Dallas in-, in every aspect of this game. It's funny because I was leaning towards Brooklyn with Kyrie on the road. I feel like the market overvalues home court advantage, especially with the Brooklyn Nets, as you, as you just outlined. And they're probably underrating, I think, Kyrie at this point. So I'm going to switch my lean all the way on the other side, especially if they're getting, or you you accurately decoded the math. My my numbers do make it pick them, but odds makers almost never that I've seen release a game at pick them. They'll open a, as one team favored, and they'll usually they'll usually uh, lean towards the side or have a bias towards the side that the team that public is more likely to bet, which is usually the home team, especially when they're a title favorite like the Nets. So I feel like they're going to you're going to get some line value with the Mavericks, but you just said, "Hey, if I get an 80% result, what am I going to do it? Do with it." Well, I'll tell you my personal credo. I'm not going to bet against it. I might pass, but I'm not going to bet against it. The Nets, I mean, as well as Durant played versus the Knicks, they didn't cover. Didn't even come close to covering. So Nets at home till further notice is a is a fade or pass for me. Yeah, and I 1,000% agree. Doesn't mean you have to bet against them every game, but to bet on them, I just think would be reckless gambling, to be quite honest. And it sounds crazy, you know, with a team that has Durant and Kyrie for, you know, half their games, but, well, Kyrie for none of their home games. So, yeah, it it would just be reckless gambling uh, the way I see it. I'm going with the Mavs in this one. I'm going to play that game, too. It's not just a lean for me. I'm going to play it. One more game before our best bets. Celtics at the Warriors. I mean, 
Mackenzie, over the past few years, the Boston Celtics have had pretty good success going on the road at Golden State. Celtics right now are the much hotter team. How do you see this one unfolding, and what's your projection? Well, a lot will depend on what we see from Draymond Green tonight. That game hasn't tipped off Monday night, but he's finally coming back. He's finally coming back after January 9th, more than two months off, 65 days off. And I think we forget how dominant statistically the Warriors were through the first two months of the season. Now they're like, you know, they're five-ish. They're, you know, they have the top three defense. They have a top 10 offense. All those numbers are watered down by what's happened the past two months without Green, where they've played 500 basketball. Now, I don't think it's all that Draymond Green is so valuable. I do think working Clay Thompson in has been a big anchor weighing down this team. Late in games, I've seen it over and over. They're kind of force-feeding Thompson, thinking we need him to have utmost confidence in the playoffs to do anything. That strategy might finally, much to my, much to my chagrin because I had the Bucks in that game, as my best bet, it might have finally paid off because Clay Thompson awoke from his slumber against the Bucks, thirty-eight points, sixty-three percent shooting. That's the kind of game six Clay Thompson that I think it was worth it. If you play five hundred basketball and you kind of play suboptimally, but you get Clay Thompson going and he returns to form, then I think it was all worth it. Especially if Draymond Green comes back and he looks like Draymond Green again. Yeah, I mean, you know, I worry about Draymond and how he's going to look. The guy is, you know, he's not one of those finesse guys, right? He's not just going to come in, avoid contact, and, you know, just put up some threes and and make his impact that way. He's a body banger. He's tough. He he likes to get under the skin of every, every team, every player that they go against. A guy like him, it might just take him more time to come back from an injury effectively than it would take a catch-and-shoot player. You know, I, I mean, it's easier in my opinion. Even though Thompson, when he's at full health, is one of the best two-way players in basketball, it's easier for Thompson to make an immediate impact as a catch-and-shoot player and ease his way back into things than Draymond. There's no easing for Draymond. If Draymond's not physical, if he's not pesky, if he's not playing defense, he is useless. And, and so I worry about him and just how much of an impact he'll have game two being back. You know, so far... Uh, they're in the second quarter, the Warriors and the Wizards, and he's had a very light night. It's almost halftime. He's only played seven minutes, three points, three assists. I don't think he's a rebound yet. So if that's the kind of night we get from him against Boston, I think it could be a long one for the Warriors. Now, look, they've been hot. They answered a five-game losing streak with the current three-game winning streak that they're riding into this one. They've covered four in a row. But the Celtics, I mean, you want to talk about a body of work. Over their last 19, they've won 16. Now, they haven't been as good against the spread. They've covered just 10 out of their past 19. So there's been a lot of games that they've won and haven't covered. But they cover 60% of the time after a loss. They cover about 56% of the time on the road. And and this has been, you know, just a favorable matchup for Boston in in recent years. I kind of think the Celtics might be the uh, the bet in this one. Yes. I'm I'm fascinated where this line comes out because – I think Boston's been as good. I mean, they've definitely been as good as Golden State the last couple months. With Green Green back, he started on the bench today. He probably doesn't get his full allotment of points. I think this is even teams. I think we're going to see a two, two and a half point line. And I don't like either side. I think that's about the right number. The way I want to get at this game, though, bonus prop, Steph Curry over the last few games, it's been a 24 and a half. Point guard is the one position 
that that the Celtics aren't top 10 against as far as allowing points, which makes a lot of sense to me because they're switching everything. So who who does that hurt? Well, it help, it hurts a wing player that can't get past his man because if they switch a big on him, okay, then he can get past his man, but the more likely they're going to switch a Marcus Smart on him, they're going to switch they're going to keep speed in the equation. Well, you can't switch anybody that's faster than a point guard onto a point guard. That's why Curry in this system against this system has had a ton of success. That's why point guards in general, the Celtics allow the 11th most points to opposing point guards. That's not that great, but if you look at every other position, they're top five against shooting guards, they're number one against small forwards, number three against centers. Point guards is the one way to attack them. I also like this bet because Curry just put up eight points in a big marquee game against the Bucks as Klay Thompson went off. These games don't People often look for trend lines that aren't there because these games don't matter when it comes to the next time they lace them up. They have a completely different mindset, a completely different game plan. Curry's not going to average eight points going forward. He just had one game where he wasn't shooting a lot, three for seven, and he let Clay Thompson do the work against the Celtics team. I think the game plan calls for the exact opposite. I think we get a nice, juicy, flat 24 and a half for Curry, and I like him over. Topper. Since Kevin Durant left, went to the Nets in 2019, the Warriors have played three games against the Celtics. Curry against his defense against the Celtics has averaged 38 points per game in three games versus the Celtics. That's 14 points higher than where I think this number comes out at. I like the over for Curry, over 24 and a half. Yeah, I think that's just the best angle to work with in this one. You know, if the number is two, two and a half, it's too light for me. I need Boston at like a plus four and a half, plus five for me to really take them with conviction. Uh, so at two, two and a half, it's a stay away for me. But if you're looking for an angle, I think, you know, Steph's got to be the angle. It's uh, it's one you don't have to look too far for, right? He's one of the best shooters in the, in the history of the game. And it's proven to be already over the past few years, a favorable matchup. The Celtics, it's not like their roster's all that different year after year. So there's familiarity there. And I think it's the move. I think it's the bet. But it's not the best bet. So, Mackenzie, I ask you, what is your best bet? For my best bet, we're going to go to the great city of Miami. But we're not going to be betting on the heat. We'll be betting on the Detroit Pistons Tuesday night in the first half. You might have heard this. The Pistons have been crazy hot since the second night. Since the second half of the NBA season started, they've covered their last 11 games. Here's what's crazier. As good as they've been, plus six and a half ATS margin in those 11 games, in the first half, that accounts for 95%. Let me see. 6.5 divided by 6.2. Yes, 95.3% of their ATS margin has been in the first half. We No, no more was this clear than on Sunday versus the Clippers when they were up by 14 at half, ended up covering but barely. And this is all about te- catching teams surprised hitting teams in the mouth. The Pistons have been a pushover for much of the season. Cade Cunningham, something happened over that over that week-long All-Star break. He's been a different player, and teams just haven't been ready for it, especially big favorites have gotten down huge. We saw that with the Celtics. We saw that with the Hawks. We saw that with the Clippers on Sunday. Teams don't know what to do with this new Pistons team, especially in the first half, plus six Per game, the last 11, which have covered all of them, I'm expecting the same, especially that we get a juicy number. 13 and a half right now for the Heat is the game total. That translates to about an eight-point first-half spread, so that's the best bet. 
Pistons plus eight in the first half. I expect the game to be tied. I expect the Pistons to bring that energy and the heat to kind of take a step back before realizing what this Pistons team brings to the table. That's why I like the best bet of the first half Pistons plus eight. Yeah, I mean, look, the Miami Heat are not a dynamic offensive team, right? We're not dealing with the Bucks here. We're not dealing with the Sixers here. I know the Heat have the one seed, but they play a tough, nitty-gritty style of hoops, and that's exactly the kind of team that Detroit can hang in there with for the first 24 minutes. They've been incredible against the spread lately. Like you said, I don't know what the hell happened out there in Detroit, but they look like a totally different team over the last two, three weeks, and uh, it's hard not to like that bet. You know, you're just asking them to essentially keep it to a single-digit game in the first half. I don't think that's going to be too tall of an ask, too big of an ask for the Pistons, the way that things have been going lately. I like it as a best bet. I'm going to go with the Phoenix Suns Tuesday night, minus five at New Orleans. You've got C.J. McCollum in health and safety protocols. Brandon Ingram has been absolutely incredible lately. We've talked about him on this show. I think right now the market might be overreacting to just how much he can single-handedly carry a team. Devin Booker is back. This team just put up a buck 40 on the Lakers, beat him by 30. I mean, come on, are the Suns going to go out there, put up a buck 40 and not win this game by five or more? Uh, Devin Booker dropping a 30 piece with a plus minus of plus 38 in his return, a double, double two, 10 assists. I mean, Devin Booker does not pass the ball a lot. 10 assists in his return in a game without Chris Paul, him and Cameron Payne combining for 21 assists, absolutely insane backcourt action for the Suns. Things are clicking. Phoenix was able to do what they had to do without Booker. They got him back. They'll get Paul back soon enough. This is a team that is is not missing a beat. And uh, I think Phoenix minus five and a half at the Pelicans. It's my best bet. I tend to agree with you. I'm looking for ways to fade the Pelicans without Brandon Ingram. Ingram's been sneaky, sneaky good since the All-Star break. Out of all the top 20 usage guys since the All-Star break, no one's even close really to his shooting efficiency, 66% true shooting. Just to put that in context, Kevin Durant has had one season, the great, probably most efficient scorer ever. Kevin Durant has had one season where he put together a true shooting percentage above this number, and then you just take that off the team. As as strong as this team had been, we talked about the number one net rating for the first 10 days after the break. As strong as this team has been, you take the most improved player, the one all-star caliber guy that you've had in a season where you've been missing Zion the whole time, you've been missing that all-star punch. I just think the team is 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 ready to lay down and they didn't against the Rockets. I knew some sharps were on the Rockets and the Pelicans ended up winning by 25. I think that's fool's gold. I think they're much more like the team that got blown out at home by the Hornets. I think without Brandon Ingram, without CJ McCollum, they're a bottom five team. They're being priced right here like an average team. Uh-uh, don't see it. I agree with you. Like the best bet on the Suns. Yeah, and you look at Phoenix on the road too. They're a team that covers over 60% of the time on the road. New Orleans doesn't even win 50% of the time at home. Without Ingram, without McCollum, uh, I just, you know, I'm sorry, Jackson Hayes is not going to go up there and uh, and will his way to victory in this one or even keep it close against Phoenix. You look at one team and it looks like a G League roster, at least a G League starting five. And the other team looks like an all-star team. It's uh, at the end of the day, it really is that simple to me. I got one anecdote that's going to put a pin on on the point. You talk about the Pelicans not being good at home. It's because they don't really have a home court advantage. They live in a New Orleans Saints town and they know it. I was watching the Hornets Pelicans game because I had a bet on the Hornets and they were interviewing a retiring Saints player. 
I forget which name it was, but they were, they were interviewing this retiring Saints player for about five minutes on the sideline during the game. It was about tied when they started interviewing him. He actually, I think he he was getting embarrassed. He's like, hey, can we can we turn the camera around? They're, they're, Hornets went on like a 15-0 run while they're interviewing this guy. It just put it put the the tail on the donkey. They don't really care about the Pelicans in New Orleans. That's why they're not good at home. Yeah, 100%. New Orleans is really, it's a one-sport city. It is a football city through and through. Um, you know, I, I know that they've had hoops for years, obviously, the Jazz originally, and then, you know, the Hornets and now the Pelicans. It, it just, basketball in New Orleans really never picks up. It, it's a football city. One of my favorite guys to talk to, Marshall Falk, is a New Orleans native, and, you know, he'll be the first one to tell you. It's the Saints. It's LSU. It is a football city through and through. I think, you know, there might be just as many people there, even though he's not playing, who would root for Phoenix because they love Chris Paul uh, than, you know, than people that have a true attachment to the Pelicans in this one. It's take that home court advantage, throw it out the window. Let's make some money fading the quote unquote New Orleans Pelicans team, basketball team. There we go. We've got the Suns minus five, Pistons first half plus eight. Those are your best bets. Let's go make some money. We'll see you for our 25th episode next time.